But then this past week, uh, you know, no doubt uh, you have seen all the video footage of the drama that has taken place uh, in the Capitol building and reading the news articles. And then we had the incidents of uh, racism uh, here in Oak Park. And I was encouraged to to see some of you and then hear that some of you went and many of you went uh, to the to the rally uh, that took place here in Oak Park by the live uh, cafe. And uh, so all of that kind of hit this week and, and uh, kind of built in sort of earnestness over the week. And as I mentioned, uh, I decided I was going to step into this space and, and, uh, and address that. And I thought at first about, well, I'm going to prepare a, a sermon like I typically do. And, and then the more that I kind of wrestled with it and prayed about it, and I just felt like, no, I'm just going to I'm going to make a few notes that I'm going to speak from the heart. I'm going to just tell you what I'm, what I'm thinking and how I'm processing all of this and how I think that, frankly, we as a church and you should be processing it, is what, it as well. So, but what I want to do this morning, though, is I want to um, launch into that time using the text that was the next text in line in the sermon series. It was the text that Pastor Johnny was going to preach, and, and, uh, and I had been giving some thought to this text as well because I thought that maybe I would be preaching it before, you know, earlier or later last year when we were not sure who was going to be preaching it. So the text is Matthew chapter 3, and it's um, Jesus' baptism. We looked at John's baptism last week. And this week we look at Jesus' baptism. And I want to look at Jesus' baptism and then I want to um, draw some applications out of it that I think flow very naturally uh, from, the, from the text itself. And I want to apply some of that then into uh, the situation in which we find ourselves here as a country and that we find ourselves in as uh, a larger church in North America, and then Calvary specifically, how we find ourselves and fit into all of this in Calvary. So let me pray uh, for us. Let's look at this text, and then uh, let's move uh, through it and see what the Lord would have to say to us. And then uh, let's move uh, through it and see what the Lord would have to say to us. Father, thank you for uh, your grace in our lives. Thank you for the ways that you provide for us in the midst of chaos and confusion and uncertainty and uh, god we thank you that you have been faithful to us above and beyond my expectations certainly uh, in 2020 just on all of the logistics and finances that seem so uncertain and perilous at the uh, the beginning of 2020 when the pandemic started but has been uh, you've so abundantly applied uh, provided for us here as we step into 2021. So thank you for that. God, these are challenging times, uh, challenging to know uh, how best to, um, how best to speak, how even to feel, uh, what to do, what to say. I feel the weight of that as a pastor. I know all of us in our own different spheres spheres probably feel some of that same uncertainty. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, provide us a direction, provide us clarity, and I pray that you would provide us that clarity through uh, what we see in the baptism of your son. And so guide us through your word and through Christ's example in this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start by reading uh, our text for us uh, this morning. It's Matthew chapter 3, uh, 13 through uh, 17. So, 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. So last week we looked at John's baptism and noted how John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And while John is out there baptizing and he is uh, baptizing for repentance, he is saying that someone's going to come after me and there's one who will come after me and he will baptize you with the life-giving Holy Spirit and the cleansing fire of God. And while John is out there baptizing and proclaiming this message, Jesus shows up. And he is the one that John said would come. And you would think maybe that in this moment that John would then sort of bow out and he would kind of concede the field, as it were, and Jesus would begin baptizing because he's the one that has come to baptize. But Jesus steps up to John and asks to be baptized by John. This is a... It's a remarkable moment. I mean, it should cause us surprise. It certainly causes John surprise, right? So John's response when Jesus comes to him to be baptized, John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me for baptism? I need the, the life-giving spirit of God put inside of me, John says. I need the cleansing fire of God. This is what I've been telling everyone. I need you to baptize me. And now you're coming to me for baptism? And when we think about all that we know about Jesus, particularly as the uh, New Testament unfolds, we know that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He's not coming to John to be baptized because he himself is, needs to repent of his sin. Right? So why is he coming to John? He says to John, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus has come into the world. This is, was in Pastor Johnny's prayer this morning. But Jesus has come into the world to assume, to take on, to, to, to uh, wear our humanity. Right? He, he doesn't wear our humanity kind of like a, just like a coat that he can take on and off. He's, like, he's, he's moved into humanity. He has become a human being. But the human being that he has become is the human being that has descended from Adam and Eve. It's the fallen human being, right? He has stepped into fallen humanity and he's identifying with fallen humanity when he steps up to John. And he's saying, I am one of these people. These are the people that I have stepped into. And so I come now in a way that is fitting to fulfill the righteousness that has begun by God back in the old covenant times all the way back into Genesis 3.15 and the, uh, uh, the promise given to Eve. It's, I have come to fulfill this uh, promise of righteousness. And so he steps into this moment of our fallen humanity and asks to be baptized by John. And his baptism, his baptism then signifies identity and union. He's identifying with fallen humanity and he's uniting, he's demonstrating his union with fallen humanity. 
And Jesus's baptism will set the stage then for how baptism is understand, understood throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus in his baptism identified with us in our humanity so that we in our baptism could identify with Jesus in his divinity. I mean, this is the it's the point of what we see in baptism, particularly in Romans chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul gives an extended account of what the meaning of baptism is. We are baptized with Christ into Christ, right? We die with Christ and we rise with Christ, that the divine life, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that raises us from the dead, right? So just as Jesus identifies with us in our humanity, we identify with Jesus in his divinity, identification and union then become kind of the key cornerstones of baptism that help make sense of baptism all throughout. But there's something else that I saw, and this is why I was kind of excited to preach this text before I first handed it over to Johnny, and then now I'm back preaching it, and I'm excited to mention this as well. But the thing that I saw when I was looking again at this text is the identification and the union that is inaugurated in baptism of our identification with Jesus and his divinity extends to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the divine affirmation from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I used to see this connection of union and identification, but I used to take it only up to the point that Jesus was baptized and then maybe the gift of the Spirit, because we, we get the Spirit, just as Jesus had the Spirit descend, as it were, in a dove from heaven. But the, the divine pronouncement, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that I always thought, that's for Jesus. That's just for Jesus. That's God affirming that Jesus is his and belongs to him and is the Messiah. And I never quite connected that that divine pronouncement it's for me too. It's for all who have been baptized into the baptism of Jesus. That when we are baptized into the baptism of Jesus, this identification and union then extends through the whole of Jesus' baptismal account. Just as Jesus assumes our humanity, we assume through the Holy Spirit Jesus' divinity. Just as the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove on Jesus, the Holy Spirit is brought into our lives through Jesus' ministry. And then just as the Father says of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, God says of us because of our union with Jesus, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. So I've always said, or I customarily say to people when they're being baptized here at Calvary, I'll say to them that baptism is God's promise to you that everything he's done for Jesus, he's going to do for you. And that's so much the message of Romans chapter 6 and the message of baptism. But now I would add this. Everything that God says about Jesus, he says about you. The union that we experience that is symbolized, signified in our baptism, of that this oneness that happens between us and Jesus places us into the status, into the reality of being the beloved child of God with whom he is well pleased. When you and I, who've been baptized into Christ, come up out of the water, our heavenly father is saying that he loves us and that he's pleased with us. 
that the same love that he extends to the son, the same pleasure that he has in the son, that same love is graciously given to us because of our union with Christ. So God's love is the beginning of the Christian life. This is what baptism is teaching us, right? That in this moment of baptism, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit and the love of God poured abroad. And that becomes our baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the love of God poured abroad. God's love is the beginning of the Christian life. And then it is the goal or the end, the purpose of the Christian life. We are born again. This is the common expression we find <clears throat> in John's gospel. We're born again into the love of God. We are not born primarily, certainly not exclusively, into God's morality. Right? That's not what we're born into. To be baptized into Christ is not to be baptized into his morality. It's to be baptized into God's love. And here's an important point, and I'm going to apply uh, this kind of principle of like the love of God that is poured out on us as we see it in Christ's baptism. I'm going to apply this into kind of our kind of current uh, national and, and local chaos. But I, I think this is maybe a word for someone. Uh, you need to hear this. The Father's love that he pours out, that he pronounces upon us is not because of our innate goodness, but proceeds and creates our innate goodness. Like sometimes we can think that we have to like clean ourselves up as it were to come to God. And then when we've cleaned ourselves up, then he says, now I'm well pleased with you. Now that you've cleaned yourself up, now I'm pleased with you. But that's not what this is. Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. He comes, as it were, to baptism as sinful humanity. And in the baptism, as sinful humanity, God says, you are my beloved child, whom I am well pleased, and grants graciously the gift of the Holy Spirit. And is the Holy Spirit's presence, the, the animating, uh, life-changing power of the Holy Spirit that makes us into the thing that God has pronounced us to be. So maybe you struggle this morning to believe that you are worthy of God's love. Well, let me say, in one sense, you are not worthy of God's love. No one is worthy of God's love. But in another sense, you are truly worthy of God's love if you are united in Christ. Because the very Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out into your life. And the Father looks down and sees in you the animating presence of his own Spirit. And just as a natural father looks at his uh, his natural son and sees in his natural son his own life and therefore loves the child. That is the same way that God loves us when we have been baptized into the spirit and the life-changing power of Jesus. Born again into this divine love that has been graciously poured out on us, this love then is to animate our entire vision of the Christian engagement with the world. This is how the Christian life starts. It starts by God pouring out his love upon us, and then it continues by God asking us to extend this love out into the world. And so now I want to think a little bit about what it means then to be recipients of God's love and then extenders of God's love in the midst of this world in this cultural moment. Now, I usually have about six pages of single-space notes, and this morning I've got half a page of notes. And I got a lot of things going on in my head. 
And I'm hoping uh, that I don't get fired by the time I'm done saying all the things that are going on in my head. I don't think that I will. But there's so much uh, that could be said here in this moment, and I wasn't quite sure uh, the direction or the angle to go in all of it. And uh, finally, I just wrote down some big points, and I've just been praying a lot and asking that the Lord would guide me and give me direction in speaking into this moment of where we're at. Because I will say this, I think this is a difficult, the moment that we're in reveals the difficulty that the church in America finds itself in. And here's what I mean by that. When you read the New Testament and the birth of Christianity happens not in the Roman Republic, it happens in the Roman Empire. It is not a democracy into which the church is born. There are no voting booths in the Roman Empire. So when you take up residency, as it were, or you're born into the Roman Empire, you don't have a political voice. You don't have a capacity to pull the, pull the lever and vote for this emperor or that emperor. There is a sole power that is put in place by might and by military conquest, and that power then runs the entire empire, and you can do nothing about it. All you can do in that context is live faithfully in relationship to Jesus. You're not asked to bear the burden of determining what the political structure should be. But in our American democracy, we find ourselves here as Christians not only called to live in this world in which we find ourselves or this nation in which we find ourselves, but we are all given a vote and a say into what we think the political powers should be. And the reality is the New Testament does not give us direction on how to navigate that. Not clearly, not explicitly, and it wasn't the context in which the early church found itself. So they never had to provide guidance and direction on it. So here we are in 2021 in American democracy, arguably a very Christian nation in terms of our, uh, if there's any association that the world have with what kind of religion uh, America is associated with, it would be Christian. And we're trying to figure out what it means for Christians to be involved in politics as individuals and the way that we vote and the way that we support and the things we put on Facebook and the signs that we put in our yards and all of these things, right? And we don't have a clear path forward from the New Testament, and it's complicated. And this is why it is so complicated. So I don't pretend that this is like some easy no-brainer thing and we can just all figure it out. And there's just like four Bible verses and we just read these and everyone knows exactly what should happen. The reason that the church in North America is divided on political issues is because we don't have a clear path forward from the New Testament about how we should be engaging politically. So let me give us three kind of broad points that I think um, relate some to this this baptism that we've looked at with Jesus that is all about the Father's love graciously bestowed upon us and then God calling us in this baptism to extend his love out into our communities, into our world. Here's the first thing I would say in light of all that's gone on this past week. We must not give way to fear. We must not give way to fear. We are fundamentally, we are in Christ, we are fundamentally safe in the love of God. And there's a lot of reasons to be fearful of the world. And uh, we saw that even just locally here in Oak Park, right? We 
can look, if you depend where you live, uh, uh, near Oak Park, what community you live in, you can, you can find occasions to be fearful. And then we see it in the news with the assault on the Capitol building. And I don't know what kind of feelings that stirred in your heart when you were watching it, uh, but I think for a lot of us, it, it produced anxiety and uncertainty and fear because we look to the government to provide a sense of stability in the world in which we live, right? We want the American government to provide a sense of stability. And when you've got the Capitol being assaulted while the vice president is inside with m mobs and rioters rushing into the statehouse, I mean, it's, it's, it's distressing. It produces anxiety. But, but our hope ultimately, is not in the security and in the sanctity of the American government. Our hope is in the love of God that has been poured out into our lives through the gift of the Holy Spirit that is marked in our lives through our baptism. One of the things that I've kind of watched, frankly, and I'll just, now I'm just going to be honest here, I've watched with some degree of puzzlement is the degree to which so many political conservatives on the Republican side have bought into what seems to me just patently conspiracy theories. And I'm sure there are a few of you who are watching uh, this morning who are convinced by the conspiracy theories. And you wouldn't even call them conspiracy theories, maybe, because that's too derogatory. But I, I, I can't see any merit to them. But I know that there are so many, so many Christians even that do see merit to them. And I think to myself, like, what do I do as a pastor to help someone who I think is just bought into the blatant lies of a conspiracy theory? Like, how do I help them? If you've ever tried to help someone think their way out of a conspiracy theory, and I'm not even just talking about the, the stuff related to the election, but, you know, the, the moon landing or the U.S. blew up its own trade towers or, you know, there's just it's almost impossible to out argue a conspiracy theorist. Because when you say, but there's no proof, they say exactly all the proof has been suppressed, which is proof that that the conspiracy is true. Like you cannot win an argument with a conspiracy theorist. And I don't think that winning arguments is the way that you help someone that has fallen into a conspiracy theory. So I've been thinking, like, what is it that drives a conspiracy theorist? Like, what drives conspiracies? And I think it's this. It's fear. It's anxiety. It's uncertainty. It's a belief that, 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 that we're in danger, that there is a power that is above us that is pulling the strings to, like, work for our ill. And when you give way to fear you start to see all sorts of things that aren't there. And I would just say that the way out of a conspiracy theory is not data, it's not arguments. I think the way out of the conspiracy theory is just resting in the love of God. Just resting in the love of God. God is taking care of you. God is taking care of me. God is taking care of us. That no matter what is true out there, no matter whether the election was stolen, whether the election wasn't stolen, God is still sovereign and true. I don't need to convince you if you think the election was stolen. I don't need to convince you that that certainly could not have been the case because, frankly, in this world, elections do get stolen, right? You live in Venezuela. You live in dictatorships. Usually it's the dictator that steals the election, right? But, but elections do get stolen. And so that happens, right? There are sinister, evil, bad things that happen in this world. And it's quite possible 
that it's happening in America. I do not think that it is, but it's possible that it will one day happen in America. But it's okay. It's okay if it happens because we are resting in the hope of the love of God in our lives. Here's the reality. America will perish. At some point, it will perish. This body that I'm living in, I love it. I try to take care of it. I exercise three days a week, try not to eat too much fat stuff, right? But it will die. My hope is not in this body. My hope is in the one that holds my soul and this body. It's in the God who created it, right? America, which we live in, we love it. I love it, right? We should love it. It's a it's been a great country for so many ways with all of its faults and all of its failures. But it will perish. It will go the way of all flesh. And this is the reality of every nation that has ever uh, graced the pages of history. Right? And it's okay that America will fall at some point. We don't want to pray to hasten its day, but it will fall. And when it does, it's still going to be okay. We are called to rest in the love of God, no matter what comes true. No matter what comes true. Our hope is not in America. Our hope is in God, who holds America in his hands. Second thing, broadly, that I would say is the survival of the church not America, should be our chief concern. I think one of the things that I have been troubled by, particularly during this election cycle, is the degree to which many Christians, and this goes both ways, I mean, left and right, the degree to which many Christians have so enmeshed themselves in the political, uh, the political parties and I think what drives that is the belief that the survival of America hangs upon political decisions. And so therefore, what we should be most animated about is our engagement with politics, which is really just about putting our hope in America. I was listening to a debate. This was, took place back before the election, but uh, Eric Metaxas, a name many of you might be familiar with, he's a uh, conservative uh, evangelical Christian. Uh, he's written some helpful books uh, over the years uh, and a strong, strong Trump supporter. And then he was debating David French, also a conservative evangelical Christian, and David French is not a strong Trump supporter. And so they were debating back and forth about whether or not a Christian should vote for Trump. And both are politically conservative, both are Christian. And as they began the debate, Eric Metaxas kept going to arguments about how Trump's policies were better for America. At the end of the day, to put it this way, who cares? Because our concern as Christians is not what's better for America. Our concern as Christians is what is best for our gospel witness in the world. And if compromising our gospel witness is better for America, then we don't compromise our gospel witness, even if it means it's not in America's best interest. You look back into the rise of Hitler back in Nazi Germany, 
It's a very Christian country. How did the church get so seduced into supporting Hitler? And it did. How did it? It did because Hitler promised that it would make Germany a great power. And so the Christians in Germany cared more about Germany being a great power than they did about the integrity of the church. And listen, Hitler did make Germany a great power. His policies in so many ways were right for what was good for Germany. He took it too far. He reached for too much and he eventually got smacked down. But he took Germany out of the dregs of Europe and brought it into a prominent and powerful nation. So he was, his policies were in the best interest of Germany, but they were not in the best interest of the church. And when we're faced as Christians for having to choose, with having to choose between the best interest of the church and the best interest of our country, we choose the best interest of the church. And that goes both ways, right? I'm not just taking shots just at the Trump, uh, the the Metaxas Trump people, right? We don't find our hope in our country. We find our hope in the church. We are called not to ask the question, which candidate is best for America? We are called to ask which candidate is best for the mission of the church in spreading the life-giving love of Jesus Christ. That's the question that should guide us as we step into the polls. We are called to embody the hope of the world to come, to invite people into our midst, to invite people outside of the church, into our midst, to experience the life-giving love of God that we contain within our body. God does not ask us to impose our moral vision outside of our walls upon the community, by force even. So as we think about what it is that we are called to do as a church, we are to come to the world with the life-giving love of Jesus Christ, and we are to embody it within our community. And if you live, depending on where you live, but think about where I live, but I have neighbors that if I put Trump signs in my yard would completely compromise my capacity to share the love of Christ with my neighbors. Now, there are probably places in the world where if you put a Biden sign or places in the country where if you put a Biden sign in your yard, you would completely compromise your capacity to share the love of Christ with your neighbors. My point in this is that our loyalties, what we are known for, should not be a political party. We should not be known for a political party. We should be known for Christ. So we're going to have to go to the polls. We're going to have to vote, right? But I I have strong reservations with all of us casting our votes out onto the internet saying, this is what a Christian votes for, right? We vote for Jesus. Here's the last thing I'll say. I think it's kind of obvious in what I have been saying, but I, you know, if I was king of evangelicalism for a day, you know, and I, evangelicalism is a broad, uh, 
it's, it's a broad coalition of like-minded Christians, right? There's not, there's not a Pope of evangelicalism. But if I was Pope of evangelicalism for a day, here's what I would say to evangelicals. Evangelicals in our association with Trump has tarnished our witness in North America. When I watched the attacks on the Capitol, I was grieved. I think any American watching the Capitol attacked should be grieved. Right? I mean, it's a kind of a sacred institution in our country, and to see it uh, attacked was grievous. But I think the thing that I was most grieved by, I mean, I turned on the news and in like four seconds, I'm watching the mob outside the Capitol building. And the first thing I see is a huge yellow Jesus saves sign. And then as the news has come out more, there's crosses. Turns out that there were loudspeakers blaring Christian music. There's all sorts of Jesus fish marching around. Jesus saved signs, Bibles, people interviewed saying, we're Christians, we're here to you know, take back the country for God. The mob at the Capitol was explicitly Christian. Now we might say, well, they're not my kind of Christians. Fair enough, right? I hope they're not our kind of Christians. But they were explicitly Christian. And they weren't liberal Christians. They weren't mainline Christians. They weren't progressive Christians. They were conservative Christians. Not all of them, no doubt, were regular church attenders, but many of them were by their own admission. John Piper, back before the election, may be familiar with him. He's a pastor up in St. Paul, and um, he's very conservative theologically. He's very conservative socially, and he wrote an, an editorial or an essay uh, saying why he was opposed to Trump. And he took a lot of flack for it. But the main kind of line of his argument was that Trump's, that the, the church's association with Trump is a compromise and a stain on the church's character. And I think he's right. And I don't have any judgment on past votes. I stand by the sermon series uh, that I preached back before the election. I think politics are very messy. I think they are very difficult. And I don't judge anyone for who you voted for in uh, 2016. I don't judge who you voted for in 2020. And I'm not here to say uh, that uh, past votes are something that we all need to repent of. Politics are messy. But I will say this. Given what has gone on, And what we've seen this past week, it is time for evangelicals to gather up their papers, kind of tidy up their stuff, and they need to walk out of the Trump room. They need to step out of that space because we are compromising the integrity of our gospel witness by our association with Donald Trump. I am not saying you need to stop being a Republican I'm not saying you need to stop being a conservative. I, again, I stand by what I said in my sermons here. We need Republicans and we need conservatives, right? I lean that way politically myself, right? So all for that. But we need to not sully the name of Jesus with the person of Donald Trump. We need to be known by our love, not by our insurrections, I think it's been arguably 
complicated and messy to figure things out. I, I think some of you would say it's been clear all along. Others would say, well, it's, not, it's been harder to, to see you know, what's right or what's wrong. Whatever it's been muddled up until this point, I would say at this point, I think it's become clear. It has become clear. And if we have an interest in carrying forward the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God, then we need to disentangle ourselves from the political powers that compromise and sully our reputation and, more deeply, the reputation of Jesus. And again, I would say that's a principle that extends in both directions. If you know much about Christian engagement with politics, one of the postures of Christian engagement with politics is the, called the Anabaptist approach. And they just kind of step out of politics altogether. They just say, we're not going to be involved in politics. That's the world, and we're going to just stay, and we're going to just kind of embody the kingdom. And I, I, I don't go fully that way, but I have a lot of, um, lot of appreciation for why people would go that way, because it's so difficult to engage in the political realm without getting yourself sullied in it. And what I would just say is, however we do it, we need to engage in politics in a way that does not confuse the world that we think to be a Christian means to be left or right. We should be known for our loyalty to Jesus Christ, not our loyalty to a party. And again, that goes in both directions. I think what we're seeing this week is we're seeing an example of what happens blatantly when one party goes off the cliff and the church just gets drugged down off the cliff with it. Well, the notes and uh, maybe I've said uh, stuff that I will repent of later. I don't think that I will. I think I've said what I think. Um, and uh, I would pray for us to give careful thought to what God is asking of us going forward. What is God asking of us? Situated as we are as a church, collectively, what is God asking of us? What is God asking of us as individuals in the way that we engage politically? Social media, media in particular is what I'm thinking about. But I would just say this moment in our uh, nation's history and in the life of the collective church in North America and in the life of Calvary calls us back to a moment of just clarifying, clarifying where our true loyalty and allegiance lies. And it lies ultimately with Jesus Christ, not with either political party. It lies with Jesus Christ. And we need to make sure that the world knows that that's where our loyalty lies. All right, that's it. That's all I got. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask uh, that God gives us wisdom for that, and then we're going to close with a song. Uh, Ivan's going to lead us uh, through uh, Good, Good Father. It's such an appropriate song, I think, that kind of captures the spirit of Jesus' baptism. That this good Father has bestowed upon us his love, and he is asking us to extend that love out into the world. So despite all that's going on in the world, let's embrace that love of God and let's extend it out into the world. Join me in praying. Father, thank you uh, that you love us.
Thank you that you sit sovereign upon the throne. Thank you that you're calling us to our loyalty uh, to be in Christ. Lord, I pray for uh, those in our congregation for whom uh, that's a, maybe a particularly challenging word this morning, and, and uh, I don't know that I've said it all exactly right or um, uh, that I haven't misspoken at various points. But I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, by your spirit, uh, clarify in people's hearts what you want them to receive. And I pray, Lord, that we would be known as a church that is loyal to Jesus Christ. That our community here in Oak Park and the surrounding areas, they wouldn't look at us and go, oh, that's the Republican church, or oh, that's the Democrat church. They would say, I'm not even sure what party that church is with, but I know they love Jesus. I pray you would make that true somehow, increasingly true of us as a church. I pray for those, Lord, who really wrestling with uh, just all the events that have gone on here locally and in the nation and a lot of fear and anxiety. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, calm our hearts Help us to rest in knowing that you are sovereign and you are good and you love us. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to act out in fear. We don't have to act out in anger. But that we can just act out in love. So God, help us to live in love. We pray this in the name of your son who has given it to us. In his name, amen.